Well, speaking of kids, I don't know how your weekend was, but my weekend was pretty good. It started off with a Frozen-themed birthday party. If you don't know what Frozen is, where have you been the last four years? Uh, Probably getting a lot more sleep than the rest of us. Uh, Frozen is a blockbuster movie that came out in 2014 or 13, actually now, and, uh, and it's a Disney movie, and a tribute to its success is the fact that uh, my daughter, who's five, insisted four years after the fact that she must have a Frozen-themed birthday party. Now, we gave her lots of other options. We said, are you sure you don't want, they were all very good options, very fun options, but she said, no, I want, uh, I want a, a sleepover. We said, you're too young for a sleepover. You can't have a sleepover. She said, I want an almost sleepover. Okay. So we had an almost sleepover where people got in PJs and they got in, um, and they got in their, their, uh, their uh, sleeping bags and they watched a movie and they didn't sleep over. Um, but the, one of the reasons why that movie is so, has been so popular is in large measure due to its theme song, Let It Go, sung by the, uh, sung by the, um, the main character, Elsa. And in the midst of that song, she, she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, in the context, it's not, it, you know, there's some merit to those words, but freedom. It's a concept that we all value deeply value. It's enshrined in our Constitution as an inalienable right, or the Declaration of Independence. It's a, comes at the climax of our national anthem, right? I mean, no one starts cheering when we go, and the ramparts. Why? Because no one knows what a rampart is. But when we say, for the land of the free, then everyone screams and yells, and yeah, freedom. We love it. We celebrate it. We want it. We fight for it. But what do we mean by it? Uh, Robert Bella, a sociologist, said that for Americans, freedom is perhaps the most important value. That that it rises to the top above any other. But, you know, the the definition of freedom has changed somewhat. What do we mean by freedom today? When we talk about freedom today, usually what we mean is... Freedom is the ability to choose to do whatever I want to do. Freedom is the ability to choose to do whatever I want to do as long as or up until it doesn't interfere with your right to choose to do whatever you want to do. It's called the law of non-interference. Uh, let me break it down for you. Freedom, uh, the freedom, my freedom to move down the sidewalk and uh, wave my fist around as much as I want Um, it stops, the border of that uh, stops with your freedom to have your face walk down the sidewalk the other direction, right? Uh, When my fist meets your face, the freedom is broken. That's our understanding uh, of freedom today. It's freedom of self-assertion, freedom to do whatever we want to do as long as it doesn't harm others or impinge upon their freedom to do whatever they want to do. Alan Ehrenhardt is a, was an urbanologist and a journalist, and he wrote this book on, um, 
kind of what's happened in Chicago. He's written a couple books on what's happened in Chicago and its uh, demise and redevelopment and things like that. And, and in that book, he, he says that, or in one of his books, he says that most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem to be so clear and self-evident that they scarcely need to be said. He said, first, is that choice is a good thing in life, and the more of it we have, we happier, happier we are. And our, I think our our supermarkets are a tribute to this, right? Choice is a good thing, and the more of it we have, the happier we are. So we have to have like 1,100 brands of Cheerios. And I don't know about you, but when I stand in the aisle of a grocery store and there's 1,100 different brands of Cheerios, I am happier, aren't you? Don't you feel free in that moment? Well, but we think that. Uh, that choice is a good thing. The more of it we have, the happier we are. And second... That authority is inherently suspect. That nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. In other words, he's saying, uh, you know, no one can tell me what to do because the sense is in our day is that the self, the individual, they are the highest authority. Um... In other words, our modern understanding of freedom is intimately related to our understanding of authority. I know what's best for me, and no one else can tell me otherwise. That's how we understand freedom and authority today. So, uh, I know that some of you are like, Kyle, this is a bit heady. You've lost me. Can you break it down a little bit? Let me think. How would I explain this to my five-year-old daughter? I know. I've got it. So, a modern definition of freedom is basically this. It's time to see what I can do to, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That I myself get to set the boundaries for my life. I get to determine them because I am my highest authority. That's our modern definition of freedom. Well, we've been in a series on the book of Mark. And the book of Mark, the great theme of the book of Mark, is all about the coming kingdom of God. We found in the very first chapters that this theme is introduced when The heavens ripped open and the Spirit descends, and we see that God's kingdom is breaking in. And when we hear about God's kingdom breaking in, uh, we see that this is what the gospel, the good news, is all about. This is what the preaching of Jesus is all about. Look, when Jesus starts his public ministry in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, it says that he starts it proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is the content of that gospel? That the time is fulfilled. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when it talks about kingdom of God, I think of kingdom, I tend to think of a place. But when Mark talks about kingdom, kingdom is not so much a place, but a rule, a reign, the authority of God. See, the good news is that God is breaking through, and he is invading the world and reestablishing his rightful claim on it, his authority. 
That's the kingdom. And so, this raises a really important question against the backdrop of our understanding of freedom. How is this really good news? What does the kingdom of God and the rule of God and the authority of God do to my freedom? You see, we might as well just put it out there because it's on everybody's mind. And that's this. Most of us think that on the one hand, if you are not a Christian and you're here, or you know your non-Christian friends and neighbors, they think that Christianity must be false and must and cannot be good because it inhibits my freedom. And anything that would inhibit my freedom, the highest value, and my ability to choose whatever I want, must be bad. On the other hand, there are Christians, many in this room, and they think, no, the kingdom of God is good, the rule of God is good, and so obviously it can't inhibit my freedom or my ability to do what I want to do or my self-assertion. And that's what you see a lot in the church today. And so here's my question. Who's right? Are they both wrong? How can God's rule, God's authority, be good news, in other words, when it seems to undermine the freedom that I hold so dear? Well, in order to understand that, we need to look at what Jesus, how he expected people to respond to his message. Look verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus thought that the fundamental response, disposition that he expected to people, that he expected people to, to do in light of his preaching, in light of this news, in light of the kingdom of God, is that they would repent. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at what is repentance and why should I repent? What is it? Why should I do it? So first, what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Verse 15, Jesus says, uh, repent and believe the gospel. Now, a common understanding of, or the basic understanding of repent is that repent is to turn, to reorient your life, to change your mind. That's at its fundamental level. But most of the time, our common understanding, uh, when we understand repent, we think it means to reorient your life from, uh, from irreligious values to religious values. To leave sin and to accept Christianity. Um, and what people hear us saying or people hear saying, most of the time when we use the word repent, what we mean is stop disobeying and start obeying. Stop, uh, stop being, um, leave your uh, untraditional ways and adopt traditional ones. Leave your liberalism and adopt conservatism. That's how most people hear. But here's the thing about uh, what we have to ask is, when Jesus says, repent, reorient your life, you have to ask, well, what is this reorientation from and to? And there's a curious thing about Jesus in the gospel. When he says repent, he's actually talking most often to traditional, conservative, religious people. So if he's telling traditional, conservative, religious people to repent, to reorient your, their lives, he can't be telling them to turn, to reorient their lives to conservatism, to traditional values, and to religion. Because they already do that. 
It's got to be something else. Well, what is he telling them to do? Well, think about the context. He is proclaiming God's in-breaking rule. And in that context, to repent, to turn, is to reorient your life to the in-breaking rule of God. Or another way to say it better is to repent is to have your life reoriented by God's in-breaking rule and authority. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and that has a, a various kind of um, applications, levels of application. It has application at a societal level. You see, when Jesus proclaimed that good news, uh, and he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was coming, and he said repent, it would have had particular implications for his first audience. You see, Jews knew in that time that all was not right with the world. They just weren't agreed on what was not right with the world. Some thought eh, the problem is all the immoral people. And they said, what we need to do is we need to get people on a stricter moral program. They're called the Pharisees. Uh, Other people said, no, what's wrong with the world is the Romans. And what we need to get people to do is to rally and resist. They're called the Zealots. Other people said, no, the problem with the world is that that we, we aren't playing the game like we should. And we need to actually cooperate with the Romans more. Right? And we need to make sure that we use their channels to, to get in greater degrees of power. They're called the Sadducees. You see, there were moral programs or agendas for how to fix their problems. There were, there were social programs or agendas to how to fix their problems. And there were political programs and agendas to how to fix their problems. And when Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying, you need to leave all of those agendas to how to fix the problems of the world behind. And you need to reorient yourself to God's coming kingdom, to his rule, to his authority. That's why repentance goes hand in hand with believe the good news. Trust what God is doing to make the world right. Well, I think we have our programs today at a societal level. I think that, that we, we can put too much stock in our own, and I think this message is true for us today. I mean, if you were devastated by the results of the last election and Trump being inaugurated, or if you were devastated by the results of the election before and Obama being inaugurated, if that totally devastated you, or made you think, we have to take up, we have to do something, we have to, and you just put all your energies in there, you might be putting too much stock in political agendas. You might be trusting politics to do more than what it can do. Well, you should be involved in politics. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should be involved in government. We should be faithfully present there. And I think that there there are things that you could say, make arguments you can make, and Christians can disagree, valid arguments about what is best. But when you look to that to fix all your problems, Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to turn. Some of us, uh, we, we have, um, today we have a, a various uh, other programs that we have. Like we say, either we need to build up arms or we need to decrease arms across the world. And that is going to solve the world's problem. And Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to turn. 
Others of us say, well, if people would just follow a certain moral code, whatever that moral code is, if they just use the right pronouns, whatever you happen to think those pronouns are, whatever the right ones are, then the world would be a better place. Jesus is saying, turn, repent, reorient your life to the inbreaking rule of God. It has societal implications, but it also has implications at a personal level as well. You see, when, when Jesus said repent, he was saying, leave all those things behind and trust me. And, trust, and, and leave all the things about yourself that you might put stock in, like your morality or your resume. Whether you were kinder or crueler, whether you were uh, smarter or not. Uh, how much you contribute to this society, and that that's going, to, that's going to make you right. That's what justifies you. That's what makes you right in the world or makes you right with God. And Jesus says, repent. Turn and look at what God is doing and trust him for what he is doing. Well, what would that look like, like tangibly, on the ground? Well, we pick up the story in verse 16. Jesus is walking along the rocky shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees four fishermen. There is Simon Peter. We know him more as Peter. There's Andrew, there's James, and there's John. And in verses 17 and verse 19, Jesus has a very simple command to them, follow me. And it says that immediately they followed him. Now, how would you have responded Before you answer that question, just consider what Jesus is asking them to leave behind. In verse 18, we find that Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they left their nets. They were fishermen, and they left their nets. And in verse 20, we find that James and John, they leave their father, Zebedee. And who knows if they ever saw him again. In other words, what Jesus called them to leave behind was their work and their family. Now, work and family, these are vital things in our modern world. They're vital for our sense of security. They're vital for our sense of identity. But they were way more vital in that world. I mean, what you did, that was your source of income. And if you left that, guess what? You didn't have other avenues open to you. You didn't have a plethora of choices, and there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a, um, a temp agency that you could go sign up with. And, and, and if you weren't, didn't have a job, guess what? There was no social wel- welfare system. So who took care of you? Your family. But Jesus is calling them to leave their family. So where is their security? Their basic security has been totally undercut. And he says, follow me. Trust me. Trust me, I'm your security. But not just security, it's also their identity. I mean, in the ancient world, much more than the modern world, people define themselves by their relationships and what they contribute to society. So if you ask someone, who are you? They would say, I'm a brother of so-and-so, a son of so-and-so, a daughter of so-and-so. I mean, their names were like that, right? I'm Simon Bar-Jonah, like Simon, son of Jonah. That's what that means. And, uh, and not only that, I mean, what you did was you took on the family business. And like I said, there were not other options open to you except maybe to join the army. That was it. 
or maybe become, uh, become a, a religious teacher. Those were your three options. So if you didn't like the job that your dad did, great. You could be, you know, it's like, well, do you want to be a pastor or do you want to be a soldier? Those are your options. And if you don't like those, sorry, move to America. Wait. <laughs> they hadn't discovered that yet. So, so this is their basic sense of, of identity. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, you have to come and follow me and let me define you. I will make you become fishers of men, Jesus says. See, who you are is not who your family says you are, Jesus is saying. Who you are is not what your job says you are, Jesus is saying. Who you are is who I say you are. And you have to trust me for your future. See, he said, follow me, but he didn't tell them where they were going. And it's the same for you and me, you know. We don't know where we're going. I mean, have any of you been to heaven before? Do any of you know exactly what it's like? And guess what? We don't know how to get there either. We don't know which way he's going to take us. The only thing we know is that he goes with us and we have to follow him there. That's their situation. Now, some of you in here, you, you have lived lives in family where your family has a tremendous influence on your identity. They have defined you. And so, uh, you are either the smart one or the dumb one. You were the pretty one or the fair one. You were the quiet one or the loud one. You were the athletic one or the underachieving one. And your whole life has been living out of that identity of who you are, who your family said you were. Jesus says you can no longer let your family define you. I define you. Uh, others of us, we, we define ourselves by what we do in our jobs. And we often, what we produce in the world. And, uh, and Jesus says, no, that doesn't define you either. I define you. Now, in our modern context, especially with relationship to the family, uh, that's actually something that we're like, okay, yes, I agree with that. And the reason is, is because in the modern context, we no longer believe like in the ancient context that identity should be defined by what other people say about us and how we relate to them. In our modern context, we believe that, that identity should be determined by what we feel and think about ourselves. Uh, again, in, in Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella notes how in a society that places more and more value on individu individual choice, our identities are not defined by our relationships to what is outside of us, but rather what we feel inside of us, what he calls expressive individualism. The idea here is that uh, each person has a true core self, right? And you have to be true to that true core self. That's why we say, you know, you've got to be true to yourself. Or you've got to be authentic. In other words, uh, we, we have to be free to determine who we are. And when we determine who we are, we have to be free to, uh, to express that as well. And this is the world in which we live. And so you have to decide, not your parents, not your teachers, not society, whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur, or whether you're male or female or whether you're gay or straight. These things determine who we are. That's how we think. And therefore, we need to be able to express these things, or whether we're black or white. Although that one gets a lot of pushback, and I'm not going to talk about why the difference there is. But, but this is the world in which 
we live in. Only you can determine who you really are. And once you've determined it, you have to be free. It's oppressive for you not to express that. In other words, you have to join Elsa. You have to be able to throw off the shackles of the community in which you've lived in, the way you've grown, their expectations. All that has to be thrown off. And what you have to do is you have to look inside and know and ask, what is my true self? And Jesus says, I think to our modern context, repent. Follow me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You are not what you have done. You are not where you have come from. You are not even what you think about yourself within. What defines you is what I am making you to be. And I am making you to be fishers of men. Follow me. Repent. In Jesus' context, it means to let Jesus determine in his rule and his authority determine how we think about ourselves and how we relate to the world. Jesus says, turn, reorient your life to my kingdom, follow me, and trust me for your future. Because that's a real issue, isn't it? We think that if we actually were to follow him, that we wouldn't be satisfied, that we would live in bondage. And he says, no, trust me for your future. Now, that seems to be, in our modern understanding, I'll be honest, kind of stifling. Like, why would you leave everything and follow him? Why would you give up your freedom to define yourself and let him define you? Why would you live according to his rules and his standards? Why not choose Elsa? In other words, why choose Jesus? Which brings us to the second question. We've looked at what is repentance, but why should you repent? Why should I repent? Well, we pick up the story in verses 21 and 22. And Jesus there, he enters Capernaum, uh, and there's a synagogue there. And on the Sabbath, he goes in, and he starts teaching. And you have to understand that Jesus, he didn't teach like other people. Like when people got up and taught in the ancient world, when Jews got up and taught, they would give all these verbal footnotes. They would say, well, like Rabbi so-and-so said, and like Rabbi so-and-so said before him, and like Rabbi so-and-so said before him, and like Moses said before him. And they would just continue to give these footnotes. But it says that when Jesus taught that day in the synagogue, they were astonished. Why? Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What amazed them that day? Jesus didn't give footnotes. Why? Because he is claiming that I do not derive the authority of this teaching from anyone else. You see, when we give a footnote, we're saying, I'm not the author. It doesn't come from me. I'm not the original source of this thought, that my knowledge is built on others' knowledge. But when Jesus taught, he did not footnote. And what he's saying is, my knowledge of the world and how it works and God and his kingdom, it's not built on anyone else's knowledge. It has nothing to do with what I've learned from elsewhere. It actually is derived from me. Because he created the world. And he made the world. 
And he knows how the world works. He knows what's best for the world. He knows what's best for you. I was recently talking to someone, and we were talking about a situation, and they said to me, uh, I was telling them what some folks had said to me, and this guy responded, it is so arrogant for another person to think that they know what is best for me or for you. I can't believe that someone would think that. What is he saying? He's saying, like, on what authority do they think that they know what is better for your life than you do? I mean, the self is the highest authority. See, what he is assuming in that statement, and what we assume when we say that, is that ultimately no one has the final access to truth, and the person that's closest to me is me. Now, now of course, the problems with that are, are multiple, uh, one is that, I mean, do we really know ourselves better than other people? Some aspects, but not all. At the same time, there is kind of a point. I mean, what gives you the right? What makes your authority more than mine? Uh, I used to play croquet when I was in England, and, and oftentimes you would, you play it differently over there, but, but the, the stuff wouldn't be set out, and so it would just be on the side. And, and imagine one day I came up and, and I saw these folks, and they had never seen croquet and didn't know how to play it. And so what they did was they, they took the mallets and they stuffed them in the ground. And then they took the hoops and they were backed up from the, from, the, um, from the mallets. And they were throwing the hoops, like horseshoes, right, to try to get the mallets. And, uh, and then someone else said, no, 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 we're not supposed to do it like that. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to stand like this. And we are to, um, we're to, uh, we're to wear the mallets around our necks. And we're to take the balls and we're to pitch them, and you're supposed to hit it like this, right? And, and someone says, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, my way's right. No, your way's right. And, and at the end of the day, it's like, well, who's to say? Who has the authority to say? But what if, what if it so happened that the person who actually made the game said, well, this is how you play, and this is how all the components work together? Well, that'd be a different story, wouldn't it? See, what if what if someone who, who made the game, who made the world, told us how the world worked? See, why should you follow Jesus? Because he knows how the world works, and he knows how you work, and he knows how you flourish. He knows how you function, and notice that he doesn't undermine your true self. He uncovers it. He tells fishers, I will make you fishers of men. He's not saying, my call on your life is unrelated to who you are. He's saying, I know exactly who you are, and I know how to make you flourish better. He doesn't say that to people who aren't fishers. He tells fishers, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus knows your true self, but do you know your true self? You know, we, we say, I just have to be true to myself, but what is your true self? We say, I have to be free to do what I want, but what do you want deep down? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, uses this example um, that I think is rather helpful. Uh, he talks about a, um, an Anglo-Saxon warrior who, uh, a same-sex attracted Anglo-Saxon, warrior living in England in the 1800s. It's kind of a mouthful, but you've got your picture. So he says, within this Anglo-Saxon warrior, this, this warrior has two desires. 
you know, one is same-sex attraction, and the other is the fact that he wants to war against other people when they smite him. So how is this, uh, how is this Anglo-Saxon living in the 1800s in England, how is he going to respond to those two desires? Well, one of the desires he's going to say, when people smite me, and I react and retaliate, he's going to say, that's me. That's who I am. And I should express that. And the other desire, same-sex attraction, he's going to say, that's not me. That's not who I am, and I'm not going to express that. Right? Now, here's something that's interesting. Now let's change the scenario. A person with both those desires, but they're a young professional, and they're living in San Francisco in 2017. How are they going to respond to those internal desires? The exact opposite. When they see someone on the street who smites them, who jumps in front of them on the trolley, they might want to grab them and throw them down. I mean, I know we've never had any kind of experiences like that, right? So, but what are they going to say to themselves? So what do you and I say to ourselves? We say, no, 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 that's not me. That's not what I should do, right? But he's going to have the exact opposite uh, experience with the same-sex attraction. Now, why is it? What makes for these two differences? Who is being more true to themselves? Who is being true to their core self? Why do you say that? How would you know? See, what I would suggest to you is that maybe we're not as free as we think we are, and that maybe there's no, that my autonomous self just making decisions is not actually how the world works, and maybe the culture that I live in and the community and that there are societal factors and pressures and forces and powers that are outside of myself that actually have a lot to do with how I interact with the world and how I see myself and how I understand my identity. So maybe I'm not as free as I think I am. And if that's the case, if we really aren't in control Maybe we're not. Well, consider what happens next. Jesus there, and he's teaching in the synagogue, and verse 23 says that a man is there with an unclean spirit. In verse 24, we find out that this, single, this man with a singular spirit says, what have you to do with us, plural? In other words, this single spirit, he stands in solidarity with a whole host of demonic forces and powers. And... And here we have Jesus setting the scene of, or Mark, setting this conflict scene. And it's not surprising that this is the first conflict scene we see in Mark, and it's a conflict scene between Jesus and a demon. You see, I said earlier that Mark is all about the inbreaking rule, reign of God, that he rends the heavens and he breaks into the world. But when he does so, guess what? His authority is not uncontested. He comes into contested territory. We know that his rule is going to be opposed. We get a hint of it in verse 14 when John the Baptist is put into prison. But Mark, he wants us to remember, he wants us to know, and I introduced this last week, that, that Jesus' relationship, or that, that, the, the, that the human players are not the only players. That behind the religious leaders and the political leaders, that behind the disciples and behind uh, these things, that there is actually the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and a whole host of ministering angels on the one side, and there is Satan and demons on the other. That this is actually a cosmic war. 
And so that's why Mark, when he goes into his first conflict scene, he says that the first conflict, the first thing that Jesus has to do, the first conflict scene is actually with the demons because people are enslaved and oppressed. But here's the thing I want you to notice because this is very different than we often understand. Notice that there is no indication that the people in the synagogue would have any idea that this man has a demon. I mean, if they knew he had a demon in him, do you think they would have let him into the synagogue that day? And Peter, did he have any idea, and did those around him have any idea that he was actually being co-opted by Satan when he suggested to Jesus that he shouldn't go to the cross? And Jesus rebuked him and he said, Get behind me, Satan. See, what I'm suggesting is that for Mark, unlike for us, the demonic does not play out in the transnormal, the weird kind of spooky things that people make independent films about. It actually plays out in normal human interactions, like a man sitting in church on a Sunday morning, like the interactions of a church leader saying, you know, we shouldn't sacrifice so that others can live. We should protect ourselves. That was Peter and what he said. That's the demons. That's the cosmic war. The demon does not manifest himself until verse 25. Jesus commands him to come out. At least he doesn't manifest himself in the man. And we don't know if his voice was heard by others when he says, you are the Holy One of God. See, we think we're free. We think we're autonomous agents, but are we really? Are we really? Or are there other powers, social powers? And even behind those social powers, spiritual powers that influence human beings. And if that's the case, and I think it has a couple of implications. The first implication is this. If we adopt this view of the world, and I think that we should, then it means this. We should have a lot more compassion on people. Let me be very clear. The Bible is very clear that humans are responsible, culpable agents who act in this world. And let me also be very clear. The Bible is also very clear that humans are victims, slaves to powers bigger than themselves. Two things that we don't like to hold together, but the Bible does. Humans are victims and humans are responsible agents. And so we need to have a lot more compassion on people. We need to have a lot more compassion on ourselves. We're not always in control as human beings. The second thing that we need to realize, the second implication, I think, from this is this. We need to admit our need for a power that is greater than I myself. That the problem that we are in is bigger than we can handle. That the forces that we face that guess what? We don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to deal with them. But there is one who does. Jesus. I haven't read the uh, book, nor see the movie that, uh, that's based on the book. Uh, but I know enough about the plot line to know, that, that, uh, to know a scenario and, and for it to have an illustration. So I'm not recommending this movie, but... 
The movie Room in 2015, you might know it's an independent film. It's starring Brie Lawson, and she plays a woman who's been captive for seven years. Her son is five years old, Jack, and he was born into captivity. His father is the devil. Like, literally, he's a man who has enslaved and oppressed his mother and him and kept them enslaved. They live in a small shack uh, 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 they call The Room, they share a bed, they share a sink, they share a closet, uh, and, um, and they share a little kitchen. Not much else. The son, Jack, he believes that that's all there is to the world. And when he's introduced to or told about a wider world, he's, he can't believe it. So for him, this is the, the shack is reality. Now let me ask you, what does freedom look like in that boy's life? Does freedom look like the ability to choose to do whatever he wants to do? Because you know what? What he wants to do is confined to that shack. That's all he knows. That's all he cares about. Is that freedom? Or is freedom having the authorities with the power to do something coming in and exercising their authority to liberate him from that situation? Well, I think it's the latter. The picture Mark gives is that the world is the room. And we are enslaved. And Jesus, he has the power to liberate us. Verse 25, it says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And listen to this. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out. See, Jesus has the power to liberate us from the dark forces. And only he does. And he not only has the power, he's not only able to do it, he's also willing to do it. They asked the question, why have you come? Uh, why, uh, so they asked the question, the demons in verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. Yes, I have. And that's what the gospel of Mark shows Jesus on the march, kicking the demons out. Jesus on the march, putting them down. See, Jesus has come to destroy the demons, and Jesus has come to destroy any power that dehumanizes and oppresses and destroys his children, his creation that he's made, including sickness. There's a scene after this, they end up in Simon Peter's house, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is, has fevers. It wasn't read earlier. But Jesus comes into the house when they tell him about the fever. And then verse 20, 31 says this, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. Well, that is so tender. That is so compassionate. He came and he took her by the hand. See, he destroys the demons, come out. But he takes Simon Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and he raises her up. There's a scene in the third book of the Lord of the Rings where a person comes in and they're not quite sure who this person is. But the person goes into a hospital and they start interacting with all these patients that no one was able to heal. And as they interact with these patients, the patients start to be healed. 
and someone says, aha, this is the one. Because there's an old proverb that goes like this, the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. Why should you follow Jesus? He not only knows how you work and how the world works and how flourishing works, he has the power and the compassion to liberate you and to heal the earth. He does not use his authority to enslave, but to liberate, not to oppress, but to oppose every dehumanizing force in the world. And Jesus, he himself became captive. He gave himself over to the political leaders, to the religious leaders, and to all the spiritual forces behind them. And he said, do your worst on the cross. And they did their worst. And in that, he did his best and he overcame them. Christus victor, Christ victorious over all the powers of hell. This is our conquering king. You know, when it's election season, most of the time during election season, uh, you know, politicians, people that are going for office, um, they present their political platforms, or at least they should present their political platforms. And most of the time they say, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And, and oftentimes they, they point back to their resume and they say, you know, like what we did in Detroit, that's what I'm going to do for, the, for all of America, right? If they're running for president or something like that. Uh, what I did in this city, I'm going to do for the whole state. Look at, look at this track record, look what I did. Well, Jesus the King, he comes and here's his political platform. I have come to destroy the works of the devil. I have come to do away with the demons. I have come to liberate the children of God, and I have come to make everything sad come untrue. And what I did in the synagogue that day in Capernaum, and what I did in Simon Peter's house that day with his mother-in-law, that's what I'm going to do to the whole earth. You see, this is his kingdom come, and it's coming still. It's already come in part, and it came that day, and it will come in full So repent. Reorient your life to his healing reign. Because if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen.